Welcome to the Citizens Youth Podcast. Citizens Youth is a ministry of Northwest Gospel Church in Vancouver, Washington. Citizens is a community of students who are learning to live for Jesus. We meet every Wednesday at 7 p.m. To find out more, visit us online at nwgospel.com forward slash citizens. All right. Man, it's really hard to uh, follow that. Thank you. Not, the, not your part, the part before <laughs> your part. Um, you know, because anything I do up here, uh, anything Sam, Courtney do here is from our story, but we have so much behind that, so many experiences behind that. Hearing your stories where you're at, where God is choosing to meet you in the moments in camp and such, that is really powerful. And it's powerful to see how God continues to, I guess, build people up um, at all ages. And it doesn't just start at some point when you're 25 and you have a mortgage. It starts a lot earlier than that. And that's something that is both amazing and I suppose a little bit scary. All right. I'm excited to be here. I'm glad uh, to have the opportunity to go through what I would say are kind of an odd set of verses in Colossians. Uh, just to preface this a little bit, I am a bit older than your normal speaker up here, so I may have a tiny bit less energy jumping around, running down aisles than when Courtney talks. <laughs> or Sam, I guess. But I can get excited. I am excited to get through these really relevant verses about what God wants to teach us about why Jesus is better, about why life in Jesus is preferable to death. So uh, I know we have an escape room coming up, and the theme is something that's relevant to me as kind of a lifelong nerd. Star Wars has been a, uh, something that I've enjoyed for, more, for, for a while. And I like the concept of that kind of small band of fighters kind of throwing off the oppression, throwing off that evil group, that band of underdogs. Even in, I think there was a second trilogy made, but for the purpose of this example, we're going to kind of forget that those exist and just focus on the first three. When I was in college, a similar story was the Matrix trilogy. More recently, could be more like the Hunger Games. But regardless, it's this example of this small group, underdogs going up against someone much more larger, be able to sacrifice tremendously, people give their lives, but ultimately they find life, they find freedom, the enemy is defeated. Now, is there ever a sequel to those where they basically choose death again? Like, it's really cool that the empire is gone, but maybe could we invite the emperor back just for weekends? Or it was really cool to be able to go through that horrible sacrificial experience, finally experience true freedom, but you know what really is missing here? Just a tiny touch of that original slavery and oppression, just a little bit of it. We don't really hear that story regularly. I mean, the more recent Star Wars movies get there disturbingly close, but in general, we don't usually get those type of stories. The point is, once we've found life, once we've found freedom, we want those characters, or even in ourselves, in our walk with Jesus, to grow in that freedom, to continue to experience that freedom. But in the Christian walk at times, we often get sidetracked, we get distracted, we get hijacked, as Sam 
talked about last week. The Colossian church was facing a specific example of this right in their midst, right in their own ranks. So last week, Sam talked about the dangers of being hijacked, of what happens that can derail the desire. Having provided that warning, Paul now wants to get to the heart of the matter. He wants to get to ask the church in Colossae to ask the same question, why would we choose death after life? Why would we choose death after we've already received life? I want to note, we're not really talking necessarily again about hijacking. Who was the person who said the bus last week? Okay, yeah, eye on you. Um, When we were talking about being hijacked, usually, if you're hopefully never you've been in an actual hijack experience, but in stories and literature, typically the hijacker is someone who comes, comes in, takes over the bus, airplane, car, other vehicle, etc. You're kind of just a bystander. You're not in control at all. The hijacker is in control, chooses the new destination. In this example we're talking about in the church in Colossae, and, and why this isn't necessarily a pure hijacking story, is that we're kind of in control of this hijacking. The church is kind of in control of this. It would be if you're on the bus and the hijacker comes in and you hand them the keys to the bus and then directions to the destination that they want to go to. We can't necessarily say that it's just the fault of the hijacker. We have the ability, we have the choice in this story for how we react, how we're choosing life. So let's dive in. We'll read the text, we'll take a deep breath, and we'll start piecing the puzzle together. So I'm not exactly going to call these simple verses. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son. That's kind of a simple thing. God loves, gave son, done. We can go home. There's a little bit more involved here, a little bit more out there. So we'll take the time, digest this a bit more fully. All right, let's dive in. Colossians 2, starting in verse 16, going through verse 23. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God." If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh." All right, lots of big words there. We'll get back to asceticism, precepts, my personal favorite, sensuous mind. But we need to first take a giant step back and figure out our context. There's a lot of danger that can derail us right off the bat if we have too much focus on even the first part of this text. It's really easy to take verses like, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you and start applying it to a whole host of subjects that get us into deep water 
really quickly. So first, we need to absolutely figure out what it is that we're talking about. The church in Colossae had a problem. They had a false teacher or a set of false teachers in their midst who were twisting the good news of Jesus Christ. That he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them, as Sam went through last week. Those false teachers were starting to mix local pagan folk culture into the Christianity practiced in the Colossian church. For example, there was a tendency in that culture to call on angels to help them, protect them from evil spirits, to protect their family that could control the weather, so they would talk to angels. It's a little, a little weird, but this was false teacher using this false spirituality, which at its root sounds okay. I mean, there are angels in the Bible. They typically do good things. So why wouldn't we necessarily talk to them at times? Well, because we're twisting the truth that only through Jesus do we find help and protection. So when we twist it, we're getting into dangerous territory. This false teacher claimed to have spiritual insight and, as we get into the passage, was apparently advising Colossian Christians to practice certain eating patterns, rites, and celebrations. So we're definitely not taking, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you and start applying it to everything. Down that path lies madness. Our culture loves to do that. My body, my rules, my life, my rules, my identity, my rules. If we start taking this and therefore let no one pass judgment on you, we can start getting to a place where we're rejecting clear teachings that Jesus has about our identity, our body. He is not, Paul is not giving us license here to twist his words, but he is warning the church that in following those teachings, they are allowing themselves to get hijacked. They're choosing death after life. So first, let's go back to life. What is life in this context? Then we'll get into some of the specific warnings that Paul is trying to give us. So life was defined for us back in Colossians 2.12. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Can we just stop and take a deep breath and praise God? I mean, Pastor Andrew talked last Sunday that when we hear the good news of what God has done for us, that it changes our posture. That once we actually accept the reality of what God has done for us, what Jesus has done for us, that it turns us to a posture of praise. And at times we have to remember, as Lily, I think, just showed us, that we have to remember and keep in mind what God has done for us, the identity that God has provided for us, and that life is good. That that life that God has given us in the body of Christ is good. What a beautiful picture. This life, this forgiveness is absolute. We have no further record of debt, no further demand. We have Christian liberty. We'll get into that more in a moment. So that's life. What is the death that Paul is warning us against? Three different examples. First, 
false control on what I eat and drink. Let's get into verses 16 and 18. It says, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink. And then skip into on to 18. It says, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism. First, let's talk about what this isn't. Paul is not saying have no control on what you eat or drink. Uh, he isn't saying as great, I guess, as that would be. Let's have Taco Bell every day. He's not saying... Let's have that one extra bag of Doritos. I love Doritos. I would not eat them every day. Probably. He is also likely not talking about the food laws found in the Old Testament, like what is clean versus unclean. He is talking about asceticism. There's a word to bust out at a time you want to impress someone of the opposite gender at a party. Asceticism. What is asceticism? It's the belief that a person can become morally or spiritually superior through denying themselves physical pleasure. So you basically are super mean to yourself, and then because of that, you become really spiritual. So it isn't just fasting. Fasting is a spiritual exercise, but you're trying to get a lot of stuff out of it. So it's basically fasting with benefits. It's not simply avoiding a few dishes for Lent. It's avoiding all meat, plus Coke, plus chocolate, in order to become spiritually superior. It's becoming vegan to become spiritually superior. Just kidding, I love you vegans. Mostly. <laughs> and in many ascetic traditions, these food decisions were human traditions that, going back to verse 8 here in, in Colossians 2, are according to the elemental spirits of the world. Anyone remember what that referred to? Demons. Said it from the pulpit. Demons. <laughs> These traditions were meant to be a prelude to the reception of, quote, heavenly visions coming from demons. So maybe not necessarily heavenly visions, but I'm not sure heli is a word, but closer to that <laughs> as a comparison. Here's a warning from Paul. Don't let anyone pass judgment on you because you aren't following their weird ascetic eating movement that likely has no basis in Christianity anyways. <laughs> we'll go back to this in verse 17. This is a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Any of these false traditions, any of these false traditions of following human precepts and teachings are before life. Your substance Everything now belongs to Christ, including your eating. Now, there is what we call Christian liberty in how we eat or drink. We do have the ability to eat a lot of things. We have the ability to drink a lot of things. But if I have a family member struggling with alcoholism, I'm probably not going to crack a cold one open around him. If I have someone who struggles with eating, with eating certain things, if I have a vegan over for dinner, I'm going to eat vegan food that night and hate life, but I'm going to do it <laughs> that night. Our choices in these matters start from our faith, not from any human tradition. The next example of death is in the same verse 16. False control on how we celebrate. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. 
At Colossae, the festival and the new moon celebration were to be kept for the sake of those elemental spirits of the universe we were talking about before, those astral powers that controlled the force of space and time and the weather and whether or not your job was good or whether or not you're going to get an A on the test next week. It was the elemental spirits who were in control of all of those things. So there was judgment on believers in the church based on which celebration was kept and for which reason. Do we have questions in our own culture about what to celebrate? Has anyone been asked to go to a harvest festival on Halloween instead of going trick-or-treating? When I was a kid, I knew nothing about any cultural background on anything. I just wanted Reese's. I still just want the Reese's. Like, my wife buys a thing of Reese's that doesn't go in the candy that gets passed out to anyone. That's over on the side. That's mine. (laughs) Just letting you know. (laughs) Now, Halloween is a bit of a lightning rod still, but the point is we still have the ability in our culture, especially if we're rejecting religions from a Christian basis, we come up with our own traditions. We come up with our own celebrations. So about winter solstice celebration instead. I found a uh, children's book written uh, by some people that I will do my absolute best not to make fun of a ton from up here. That uh, it's a book, children's book, about how people of many cultures throughout history have responded to the ever-growing darkness of winter. And it's illustrated by a couple of bunnies underneath uh, some sun. And I'm a little uh, concerned about them not having understanding about winter. Um, <laughs> I have an author that I read who's kind of in that sphere, who's very intelligent on a lot of subjects, and then solstice celebrations come up, and he writes about those celebrations, and he writes about the, quote, cuddle piles that happen in in those celebrations, and it's just a bunch of adults hugging each other for a long time. So the point is that humanity will constantly come up with reasons to celebrate, even if we reject biblical reasons. There is Christian liberty in our ability to follow some of those celebrations, but it is not to be bound up with pagan recognition. So yes, go to the Halloween party, unless it's going to be a real issue to that new Christian who struggles with the Halloween backstory. Go to that winter solstice celebration, unless there's going to be a cuddle pile, then back away slowly. (laughs) So to litigate how we celebrate based on human precepts, is again, go back to the shadow of the things to come. Christ has freed us from these rules. The final example of choosing death over life is in verse 18. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. Here's where I think the rubber hits the road some. We can rationalize away a couple of these warnings as just being tied to the Colossae church. But here at the intersection of 2,000 years ago in East Vancouver, Washington, we should see our culture in the mirror. Sam expressed this warning last week when he talked about vague spirituality and wanting to be closer to the divine, to, to the divine about being spiritual, not religious. Here is where we see that the danger is really coming from inside the church, coming from us. The call is coming from inside the house. We're going to go through four examples of false spirituality in the text. First, angel worship. 
The worship of angels shown in verse 18 starts to clarify the kind of odd pagan mixture getting slid into the faith of the Colossian church, where the belief would be that angels could determine where you're at in life, could cure sickness, help get a job, or protect a family from evil spirits. Now, we might say, well, that's crazy. Of course no one believes anything. That's silly. Anyone read horoscopes? Maybe, maybe a little, maybe, maybe once or twice. I discovered this week that I am a Pisces. <laughs> Would you like to hear my horoscope? <clears throat> you should be in your element with a sun in your sign. This can be a very life-affirming time of year for you. It's an opportunity to get moving on those plans and projects that are closest to your heart. They do not know I'm lazy. Point against them. Plus, with a new moon in your sign on Wednesday, that's today, this is the perfect time to make a start. However, with hazy Neptune in the mix, it helps to clarify your intentions first. In addition, chatty Mercury is retrograde in your sign from Tuesday until March 28th, which can bring delays, unexpected changes, and perhaps misunderstandings. So now I know all of that. None of this, I stress clearly, please hear me, students, none of this is real. Mercury is not chatty. It is a planet. Neptune is not hazy, although technically it is a gas giant, so it is maybe part, part of the way there. But with a lot of this, let's not get caught up in only the Christian, in the Colossian, sorry, the Colossian context and miss the danger in our own mix. We worship our own angels in our own ways, and that doesn't make it any less false and dangerous. So maybe we don't worship Michael, but hey, you checked out Kylie Jenner's Instagram lately? Maybe we don't worship Gabriel, but... Do you hear the Jonas Brothers are coming back with a new album? Now, there are moments in life that make you feel old. The Jonas Brothers being told that they're on a comeback tour makes me feel really old. Like, get back to me when they're 50 and opening at casinos, and then they're old. So again, we, we need to ruthlessly watch for our own worship, our own angels, and our own minds. The next three examples are even more clearly seen, I believe, in our American church context. False visions. So verse 18 states, going on in details about visions. This was the purpose of the asceticism we talked about before. That after withholding food or some other pleasure, the followers would experience visions that would indicate some claim to special knowledge based on a visionary entry to heaven. So they would not eat or do whatever weird stuff that they wouldn't do for a while, and then they could claim some special vision that would give them the privilege of being able to tell you what to do. Which, by the way, would have made preparing for this really easy. So do we do that at times in the church? Is that just a thing back in, in uh, the Colossian church? There are multiple pastors in America 
who use visions as a way to control their congregation. We have pastors in this country who will use quote-unquote visions in order to ask for a private jet. We have pastors who will use visions as a way to ask for a vacation home in Florida. I am relatively confident that those visions did not happen. But they use the concept of false visions in order to confuse, in order to control. They use it to sow discord among a congregation. I had a vision that this dude over here is cheating on his spouse. I have a vision over here that this family actually is struggling with their faith. None of it is real. False visions are something that can be poisonous to a church, to a congregation. And we have to be on guard for what happens. We also need to be wary in our own lives of what we can call visions and the reasons behind what we may call visions. Now, that isn't to say not to praise God for those of you who, who God has met in powerful ways in your life so far and absolutely praise God for that. But anytime you've met God, anytime the Holy Spirit has come down and met you in a place, it is not for you to gain spiritual standing among your peers. There is at no point where we pick five of you, ask how many quote-unquote spiritual experience you've had and rate, rate you based on how many you've had. You've had two, you've had five, more holy. And yet, we can almost feel jealous at times. Well, this person, God met him or her. Why don't, why don't I have an experience? And then we consider coming up with a potential false vision of our own. Because it's not just 2,000 years ago. It's our own way where we have the uh, issue of false spirituality. False visions will absolutely pull us away from God. Many of those are rooted in our next example of false spirituality, which is false humility. Verse 19 states that the false teachers were puffed up without reason. They thought they had the answers, but honestly, they knew nothing. We have so many examples of this in our own culture. We have leaders who believe that they, in our culture, in our political life, in our, act, in our local life, in the Christian church, in other, other contexts, who are so full of knowledge, of what they say is knowledge, or what they say is humility, but it's not. And the danger, what happens when we're in that space, when we think we're humble, when we think we have all the answers, is we start to let things slide just a little bit. And we make one wrong decision, but we're still humble. We're still okay. It's just one decision. And then we make another, and then we make another. And then it all comes out into the light. And churches fold. And many people get hurt. The number of people who come into our own church, come into Northwest Gospel that come from poor other church experiences is huge. We, we hurt each other through false humility. It's definitely not a sin just for ourselves. 
It's one that has far-reaching consequences. These people, when they're in this place, when you have false humility, you've lost all connection to Christ. We have to go back to that life. That life was given through nothing that we did. There was nothing that we did where Christ said, yes, good enough, saved. We were dead. If that isn't something to get us humble real fast, I don't know what is. There is at no point when you're in middle school, high school, or with a middle school or a high school in your home where you've deserved Jesus. Humility is always the path. Usually when we, there's false humility, you'll find our last example of false spirituality. False intelligence. So we go back to verse 19 and my favorite phrase of this year so far, his sensuous mind. Now I have to take a step back because it's really hard for me to uh, actually continue for a second because I really just want to enjoy that translation for a second. I'm not entirely sure uh, if um, you guys have gone through what, a, what happens when people come out with these translations. We use the ESV translation here at Northwest Gospel Church, but there are a lot of really smart people who sit in rooms, look at the original Hebrew, original Greek, and then they come up with the English translation, what that means. And here in Colossians chapter two, we have a really smart dude who looked at the original Greek and said, yes, sensuous mind, and then put it down. And it, I have really, uh, I, it's hard for me not to giggle every time that I read it. So I'm not sure if I want to use that in the future as insult or praise, but I can guarantee you I am using that in the future. <laughs> Sam is speaking on Sunday, and I'm going to tell him after he speaks that his sermon was characteristic of his sensuous mind, and he can figure out which context I'm using it then. So a different way to translate this would be the mind of his flesh. So the flesh, when we talk about that in our Christian culture, is we're talking about before Christ. It's our sinful nature. It's everything that wants to pull us away from Christ. So it's, it is characteristic of our old nature. So our false intelligence is based outside Christ. That will put us in places where we worship angels have false visions or false humility. Perhaps the false teachers boasted that they were directed by the mind. And Paul here is saying, yes, you are directed by the mind, but a mind of your flesh, not a mind that comes from God. When we get too focused on this type of false intelligence, we start even trying to convince ourselves of things that aren't even necessarily real or possible. There's a story that R. Kent Hughes tells about an old Chicago Bulls story. It's the coach Johnny Kerr at the time. He says it, we'd lost seven in a row and I decided to give a psychological pep talk before the game with the Celtics. I told Bob Boozer to go out and pretend he was the best scorer in basketball. I told Jerry Sloan, who I think now is like 80, to pretend he was the best defensive guard. I told Guy Rogers to pretend he could run an offense better than any other guard. And I told Eric Miller to pretend he was the best rebounding, shot-blocking, scoring center in the game. We lost the game by 17. I was pacing around the locker room afterward, trying to figure out what to say when Miller walked up, put his arm around me, and said, don't worry about it, coach, just pretend we won. So beware, students, beware those who come to you and say, we have a new idea. 
of the best way to follow Jesus. But where are those who say everyone had it wrong for the last 2,000 years? Here's a new correct way to go about things. I'm not necessarily saying to completely reject it out of hand, but to be wary. When I was preparing to come talk to you today, when Courtney or Sam come and prepare to talk to you on Wednesdays, do you think we just open the Bible, read it five times, and then write down whatever comes to mind? It may seem like that, but that's not actually the way that it works. No, we consult commentaries, wise people, learned people who've done this for a long time, who've studied these texts for years. We compile all of that, and then hopefully through prayer and wisdom, we come up with, uh, with a, a story to tell. Obviously, correct view, story to tell. We need to avoid false intelligence. We are never, never as smart as we think we are. So we come out of this, and we accept we want life, not death. Yes, we're done, right? Good, good to go. Paul's not done. He wants us to go right back to the main point. Why would we choose death after life. Let's read verses 20 to 23. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. If someone ever tells you that sarcasm is inherently unbiblical, I would really ask you to read Paul and probably a little bit of Jesus at times. I have tried to use that experience, the, sorry, that excuse before at times where I definitely shouldn't have, and my wife has told me no, so I try to use that only on the times where it works. But it's definitely an excuse that you can use at times, and the more you know. So Paul is unsparing in this direct question to the Colossians, which is why I'm asking this question again. And again, why are we choosing death versus life? Why are we submitting to regulations in our own lives that are according to human precepts and teachings? Why, if so, are we doing so? Arkane Hughes again states that the idea that spirituality can be quantified provides an unfortunate basis for pride and judgmentalism. The flesh finds doing truly spiritual things difficult. But the flesh has no trouble with religious rules and regulations. There is an authentic lure to legalism, but it spawns judgmentalism. It produces a surface faith because its adherents emphasize the things that are not really important. What are things that are not really important? Maybe what you eat or drink. Maybe what celebrations that you do. Our shallow self-righteousness will give us pride like the Pharisees had who thought they had everything figured out, who thought that they had all the rules, all the regulations figured out, but it was a shallow faith that couldn't even acknowledge the Lord of the universe that was walking in their presence. C.S. Lewis puts it differently. He states that it is our desire to be in the inner circle that makes us choose these human precepts at times. This desire to be in the inner circle, he says, is one of the great permanent mainsprings of human action. Of all passions, the passion for the inner ring is most skillful in making a man who is not yet a very bad man do very bad things. We talked to camp about being in a faction versus a family. 
What faction have you chosen to be a part of? And how is it potentially making you do very bad things? So we've got an example that hopefully doesn't strike at too many in the room right now. Right now, there is a ton of metaphorical blood being spilled in the world of young adult fiction. We have authors who are gatekeepers to other authors that are deciding who gets published for what reason. They are keeping actual authors from writing about subjects that they want to write about in the name of diversity, in the name of a own voice hashtag. So a diverse immigrant male writer from Asia who wants to write a science fiction story using a female protagonist set in New Jersey is getting rejected because he's not writing about a diverse immigrant in Asia doing science fiction things in Asia, even if that's not what he wants to write about. These authors are currently tearing each other apart on social media because no one can satisfy the entire list of requirements. And there's always someone new to be offended. My goal here is not to start a rant. It is to state that in our culture, there are so many opportunities for us to join an inner circle. So many opportunities for us to seek for human approval if we just join this group, if we just do this thing if we just say yes to this, if we just kind of ignore Jesus on this one thing, we'll be accepted by this, and then this inner circle will be good, and then I'll find some type of fulfillment in that. Many of these false things have, as Paul says, an appearance of wisdom. Many times a lot of this start out in a good place. Having more writers come from more perspectives is not a bad thing but the wheels can start turning, then all of a sudden you're so far from where you wanted to go, gets out into left field. Jesus quotes Isaiah 19.13 in the book of Mark. And the Lord said, because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. Our factions, whatever they are, can look like wisdom. They can even be in the midst of the church, but we have to examine our heart carefully when we're in those factions. Is your heart far from God? Are your lips praising God, but your heart far from him? Paul is saying you died with Christ and yet you receive orders from men. Why would you do this? Why grab this false, fake wisdom? This only panders to our flesh. There is no actual spiritual fulfillment. All of this is no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So where do we go in search of life? Where is life instead of death? How do we avoid getting hijacked by these dangers? We go back to verse 19. Holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. Our sanctification does not come from restrictions on what we do. It comes from the head, from Christ, and from the Holy Spirit. Kevin DeYoung, in his book, Whole in Our Holiness, says that the Spirit is a light to us in three ways. The Spirit sanctifies by revealing sin, revealing truth, and revealing glory. This sanctification, this being built up, only comes from the head. We, who are part of the joints and ligaments, need the head 
to supply us with energy and drive, and we are held together in unity by that head alone. Anytime we as the church try to operate outside of that, anytime a group of us tries to operate outside of that, we have nothing. We have no connection to he who sustains everything. If our church, if Northwest Gospel Church at some point becomes disconnected from our faith, it's because we chose We chose to get hijacked. We chose to operate away from the head. We depend on the head for wisdom to determine what is potentially hijacking us, what is potentially causing us to choose death after life. We depend on Jesus. It is only through him that we can avoid being hijacked. We need Jesus in our lives each day. But this isn't a magical process where sanctification just happens. There's a reason that the series is titled Built Up. It requires effort on our own part. That effort is a response to the saving work of Jesus Christ. In Christ, we have no need for false control in what we eat or drink. In Christ, we have no need for false control in how we celebrate. In Christ, we have no need for false spirituality. In Christ, we have abundant life. Students, if there are any in you, uh, of you, among you, who don't know Jesus, who don't understand the life available, please talk to any of the leaders that are here. We would be happy to get to know you, to meet you, to pray with you, to pray for you. If there's any among you who believe that you've been hijacked, that you've chosen to become hijacked, who see yourself choosing death after life, Come talk to one of the leaders. Let's pray with you and talk about a tangible way that you can choose life in Jesus. I spoke in the academy a couple of weeks ago about how to have a next step in sanctification, about how to choose life. And I'd like to reuse some of the advice there. I know it's not always good to double dip between messages, but I, the offer mentioned laziness, so we'll just go, go there. One, Figure out your default setting. Where is it that you are right now? Is it nowhere? Is it a little bit? When's the last time you prayed? When's the last time you opened your Bible? When's the last time that you read a book about your faith? When's the last time you listened to Christian music when it was your choice? What's your default setting? Where are you at right now? Second, don't sign up for something too quickly for too much, too quickly? If the answer to question one is, I haven't read my Bible in six months, don't sign up to read the Bible in a year. The goal is not to fail, necessarily. (laughs) The goal is not for you to just figure out something that makes you feel worse about yourself. Don't sign up for too much, but sign up for something. Maybe, if you're at zero, on your Bible reading, you sign up for one chapter of one book in one week. Maybe you read Colossians chapter 3 in a week. Maybe you read three verses in Colossians chapter 3 in a week. There's not really judgment here, but sign up for something. 
Find community. Whatever you choose to do, do it with somebody else. If, if you choose to do something and it's just you committing to it, you're, the likelihood of it being successful is a lot less than if you do it together. Find somebody. Shame them. <laughs> Maybe don't shame them. But invite them into doing something with you. And you'll find that it's just being even a more positive experience for both of you. If you're having trouble figuring out what that next step is, that's why we have small group leaders. They have advice that may be better than what I have that can speak to your specific context. And then finally, and in some ways, most importantly, don't be afraid to fail. There's so many times we can come out of camp, we can come out of this great experience where we feel like God really met us And we felt really fired up for Jesus for a while. And we said, Lord, now I will never do X. I promise to you, Lord, I will never do X. I will do this, I will do this, I will do this, I will never do this. And then two weeks later, you failed like eight times. You're like, why did I even say that? Why did I even go to camp? Am I even a Christian still? Those are lies that the devil does want to tell you. Because you know what? You're going to fail at times. Students, you will fail. I fail constantly. I fail as a husband. I fail as a father. I fail as a leader in this church. I have failed in preparation at times for this message. Failure happens. It is okay. The sun rises. The Lord does not expect perfection in our commitment, students. He does not expect perfection in our sanctification. He expects us to enjoy the life that he has provided us. Don't be afraid to fail. When we love Jesus, students, when we are citizens of his kingdom, our desire that drives us and our actions is for life. We need to understand the dangers. We need wisdom, friends, Mentors that can help us see the danger in our own lives. But most of all, we need to love him and the life he freely offers. So students, let's ask ourselves this week, why would we choose death after life? And then students, choose life. Let's pray. Lord God, Thank you so much for the life that is so freely offered, Lord, the life that we have not and will not ever deserve, but the life that came when your son died for each one of us, when he nailed our trespasses to the cross. Lord, we thank you for that life. Give us a vision of that life. Give us a posture of praise to that life so that when our earthly life happens, when tests come up, when relationships fail, when friendships have issues, when we have issues with parents or authorities, when, when our life here on earth seeks to turn us away, that you would remind us of that posture, Lord. Get us back to the place where we remember and praise you. Lord, give us a posture that chooses life and pour out your life abundantly in us. In Jesus' name, amen.